Chupenes. You're listening to CITR Radio, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it's time right now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. And who do we have on the line right now? Hello, are you there, caller? I am here. Who are you? I am Jerry Hanna. Jerry Hanna, welcome to the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. Oh, well, thank you very much. I hate to begin on a somber note, but... Rest in peace, Wimpy Roy. What can you say about your bandmate, Wimpy Roy, who was singing the song we just heard right there, one of the Canadian national anthems that the subhumans have written, O Canada. We heard O Canada by the subhumans. Can you give any background on that particular song, Jerry, and explain a little bit about who you are, how you connect to Wimpy, and what's going on today on the Nardwarta Human Serviette Radio Show? Well, um... I wrote that song a long time ago, 1978 or something like that. And uh, I wrote it when, shortly after, uh, I think it was Trudeau, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, had, our prime minister at the time, had talked about belt tightening. And uh, what that meant was that uh, people like you and me and most people we know, we were going to have to tighten our belts because uh, life was going to get more difficult for us because uh, funding was going to be cut, budgets were going to be cut, and uh, and social programs were, were going to be cut, and jobs were going to be cut, and so on. That was the first time we really heard that stuff, of course. We're used to that now, because we hear it about every two or four years, and we keep getting cut, but <laughs> the people that are in power, they seem to be getting 
doing just well. They seem to be doing better every day. And um, so that song was kind of written in a response to uh, how I saw things going in Canada at that time, including, you know, our kind of environmental decline as well. Uh, it seemed to me at that time that it was pretty obvious that we had to do something about the environment, but uh, I didn't really see any political will to do anything about the environment. And now, many years later, what is it, 30 years since the song was written, damn close to it, um, we are even in worse shape environmentally, and I see even less political will to do anything about it, particularly on the federal level. So anyways, the song was a, a protest song about the state of things in Canada, the way I saw them at the time and the way I saw them going in the future. And, um, you know, as you said, Brian sung that song, and, um, you know, he, he felt the same way as did the other three members of the Subhumans at the time the song was written. Um, you know, Brian got behind it and gave it his usual uh, power belt on stage because, uh, you know, he believed in what, what it said and what, we were, what he was singing about in the song. Um, you're asking about my connection to Brian, who uh, just died, unfortunately, this last Sunday um, at about 5 in the afternoon from a heart attack. Um, he, of course, was the lead singer for the Subhumans, off and on again for many years. Um, throughout their career, he was the one member that was always there, no matter what strange uh, shape the Subhumans may take, because there was a couple of times there with or at least once where the subhumans had no original members in it but Brian. Um, but I had known Brian since I was six years old. I met him on my way home from school one day in grade one. Um, we both lived on, in Burnaby on the side of Burnaby Mountain. Actually, as it turned out, we lived about half a block apart if you went by the trail through the woods between our two houses. and There was a trail through the woods between our two houses. Um, and uh, uh, Joe Keithley from DOA just lived a little ways down the, down the street from us. Um, yeah, we all hung out together, but I, I, I've, I've known Brian for a very, very long time. Um, in fact, uh, when, I, when my mom went in to um, give birth to me in uh, Burnaby General Hospital, Brian's mother was just getting ready to leave after giving birth to Brian. He was born eight days ahead of me. So... Um, yeah, we had a lot. We had a lot tying us together, and we we shared many many adventures together. We went from being you know little little boys playing in the woods on Burnaby Mountain. Uh, there's not much woods left, but there was when we were kids. Um, there was lots. We even had three horses in a pasture next to our house where I grew up. It was like rural situation. But anyways, um, we went from being little kids hanging out together to. Uh, you know, going through school together and then being uh, wannabe hippies together and going and trying to live on a commune and living on a farm together and then uh, ended up getting into punk rock together and, and being in one of the two rival bands, I guess, if you will. Um, there was the Subhumans and there was DOA were the two kind of rival punk rock bands in Vancouver. And... Um, yeah, Brian and I were in the Subhumans for a long time, and then after the Subhumans uh, kind of broke up, the first breakup that the Subhumans had, because there's been a few, um, it was in 82, and then Brian went to play bass with DOA, for because Brian was always a great bass player, 
better than me, that's for sure. But even though I played bass in the Subhumans, Brian was a great bass player. Um, so he went on to play bass with with DOA, and I believe he played bass with DOA for something like 14 years or something. It was a long stretch. And uh, then the Subhumans got together again a couple of times, once in 95, and Brian, of course, was singing again. And then we got together again, I think it was in 2003 or 2005, I'm not sure. I think it was 2005, actually. And uh, and we were together till 2010, uh, I believe. So that was the longest, actually, that was the longest stretch the Subhumans were ever together, including our very early days. And In fact, we put out two records after we got back together again. So I've known Brian for a long, long time. Um, we've drifted a little we had drifted a little bit apart over the last few years. I I uh, have to confess I mostly pretty much only saw him at practices and gigs uh for for the subhumans. And the last time I saw him was the last subhuman show that 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 happened and that was uh, at the rickshaw in Vancouver. Um, we were opening for uh, Jello Biafra and his band, uh, Guantanamo School of Medicine. Um, and that's the last time I saw Brian. And you are Jerry Hanna. And Jerry, you have a brand new release out called Coming Home. And that's basically you coming home from prison. And Wimpy was one of the people that visited you in prison. Is the release named after you coming home for prison? And that's what you have, a new release out right now available for people to check out. Um, it's sort of named. I mean, it's it's got a a bunch of meanings for me, but I guess that's that's definitely that is one of the ideas. Yeah, coming home from prison, arriving from a very dark place to a place that's hopefully better, <laughs> more like home. You know, um, and it's about it's also about getting older and realizing what's important, and you know, hopefully spending less time with things that are ultimately not that important and being in a, a grounded place that, that really does give a person sustenance and support, uh, that, that, which is what ideally home should be, I suppose, shouldn't it? Um, so that's kind of where the name came from. It's, it's interesting after I decided that that was going to be the name of the album. And I started looking around for the album at various sites where it was supposed to be appearing and stuff. I realized that Perhaps it wasn't the best name for the album because there's got to be a zillion albums out there called Coming Home, which I had no idea that there was. But uh, it's a very common name, apparently. Uh, but I had no idea about that. So, But you're right. It, it, it partly does come from the idea of coming home from prison um, and, you know, picking up, picking up the pieces, you know, and carrying on with one's life. And Wimpy was one of the people that visited you in prison. I should say Wimpy, Brian Goble. He also, aside from visiting you in prison, took time out for other bands. Just wanted you to quickly comment on, if you could please, Jerry Hanna. We're speaking to Jerry Hanna of the Subhumans. And now Jerry Hanna solo with Jerry Hanna coming home. If anybody's any questions for Jerry Hanna, it's 604-822-2487, 604-UBC-CITR. Brian, Wimpy's other bands, Rude Norton. I know that they had a song called Tits on the beach but he also runs another band called misty gray and i don't know any of the songs from misty gray nor do i <laughs> brian was in so many bands that i i couldn't possibly keep track of them all so i don't even know you know um i don't even know all the bands that brian was in i, I think one of the last bands brian was in was um was the trespassers if i'm correct me if i'm not wrong and that was uh brian and 
Brian and John Card, I believe, from you know the last drummer of the Subhumans. Um, I think they had a band together, and you probably know more about that than I do. You probably even saw them, but I, I yeah, I couldn't keep track of all the bands Brian was in. I mean, he was in a million um, bands, you know, not 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 big bands that were putting out records and traveling across North America or anything, but um, all kinds of bands. I mean, Brian loved playing music. He was always up for getting out on stage playing some music somewhere. Was Tits on the Beach ever up for consideration as a subhuman song? Because it, <laughs> it, it would fit in nicely with Slave to My Dick and Fuck You. <laughs> no, it wasn't ever a consideration. No, I, I don't know that I was ever that comfortable with the name, actually. But, uh, but uh, no, I don't, I don't remember that ever being discussed, actually. The Subhumans, the early days of the Subhumans, there's some photos out there with Ken Montgomery playing guitar and maybe another drummer. Who might have that been? Like, what version of the Subhumans was it? Was that Wimpy and the Bloated Cows with Joey Shithead on drums? What were the early days of the Subhumans like? Was Ken Montgomery, who is Ken Montgomery, and was he in the Subhumans? Well, Ken Montgomery was most definitely in the Subhumans. His, uh, his uh, other name that he had, his stage name that he had was Dimwit. And he was actually the first drummer of the Subhumans. In fact, he came up with the name, the Subhumans. Um, but I don't know who was in that photograph you're talking about, um, because I know that at some point, Brian and Ken were in some band that played the windmill. I don't know if it was Rude Norton, or if it was something completely different. But, but uh, believe it or not, Mike Graham, the guitarist for the Subhumans, of course, was uh, drumming in, in one of those bands. I have photos of that band with Ken and Brian on stage, and, uh, and uh, Mike Graham is drumming for it. Mike Graham would be better able to answer that question. I don't, I don't, I can't, I don't know if that was Rude Norton or if it was some other completely bizarre um, band that they came up with. I think half the time Brian and, and uh, Ken came up with bands just so they could name them really funny names and take on bizarre personas on stage. Jerry, what do you remember about playing the 171A Club in New York? It was like an after hours the Subhumans played in New York, maybe in like 80 or 81, and Wimpy was like heckling the audience saying how like New York sucked. Do you remember that gig? What was Wimpy like as a front man? Did he do a lot of heckling at each town? Um, it depends on the mood he was in. It, it, Brian could, could get in, work himself into a bit of a cantankerous stage from time to time. Uh, state, I mean, pardon me. And I... He may have been drinking that night. I don't remember. I don't remember Brian taunting the audience. Um, I don't think Brian was all that impressed with New York. I think he, like me, he had had very high expectations before we arrived in New York, and then um, and then we were kind of a little bit disappointed by it um, when we got there. Um, I don't want to speak for Brian on that, but that may have been what was going on. I'm not sure. It was a brutally hot, muggy night. I do remember that. And we were playing with the Bad Brains. They were the headlining act on that gig, I believe. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, Brian might have been in a bad mood for many reasons. Maybe he had a bad experience in New York or uh, he was, uh, you know, somewhat liquored up or the humidity was annoying him. It was boiling hot. Um, you know, come to think of it, maybe that wasn't the Bad Brains show. Maybe that was the night after that or something. Well, I can't remember. There was a bunch of shows there. We played, actually, one of those. It might have been even that night. We had played earlier in the night, one of those nights, 
with Joan Jett in uh, in New Jersey, I think Hoboken, and uh, then we just drove over to New York City, and we had another gig, and that might have been that gig you're talking about. I can't remember. And again, you'd probably know better than I do. Um, it was the after hours gig that I was referring to. However, the next night I think you played in Washington D.C. The Subhumans in Washington D.C. We're speaking here to Jerry Hanna from the Subhumans and also Jerry Hanna solo. Can I say Jerry Hanna solo? Is that what it is? Jerry Hanna solo now with release on Bandcamp. Type in Jerry Hanna and coming home into Bandcamp, and then comes up Jerry Hanna coming home. Yeah, I don't know whether I don't know whether to call it. Jerry Hanna solo or not? <laughs> I mean, that's a bit of a weird handle, isn't it? But um, uh, yeah, I'm doing. I've, I'm doing. Uh, I've got a solo album out now um, that I, that was just released on December second, and um, it's it's my own stuff. It's got nothing to do with the Subhumans. I would I would venture to say that it has nothing to do with punk rock. It doesn't sound like punk rock at all. It's more of a folk rock uh, kind of style, and. Um, Yes, I uh, it was solo. I had a band, but the band kind of fell apart for various reasons. And so when I went before, like just prior to doing the album, so I ended up just drawing on musicians from all over the place, from out in the Fraser Valley where I live, and from Vancouver. Um, and I, you know, a lot of them, well, most of them, I, I ended up just paying them something to. Uh, not very much because I couldn't afford very much, but I paid people, so it was like kind of like hiring session session musicians to uh, do the background music on the on the album, or sometimes foreground music on the album. Um, so yeah, I wish I could I wish I could say Jerry Hanna and some band, but there is no name of a band at, at this point. That could change, but th- at this point there isn't. So yeah, it's just Jerry Hanna, you know, on his own after. After the Subhumans, but I mean, it's not the first time it's been Jerry Hanna on his own. After the Subhumans, I did release, um, even when I was in prison for being involved in direct action, um, which most people wouldn't remember as a Squamish Five. Um, I released a cassette tape while I was in prison in 1985, and that was titled Jerry Hanna um, Songs from Underground, and so. Uh, you know, I've been kind of doing this solo thing off and on for many years now. Uh, I've got a couple of other weird albums out, too, that most people haven't ever heard of. Only a handful of people have them. I did an electronic album called Whereabouts Unknown, and that was Jerry Hanna, Whereabouts Unknown. And then I did another album called, uh, which was kind of a, almost like a, almost, it was weird. It was like electronic rock kind of music but the the main main aspect of it was it was trying to i was trying to do kind of spoken word over top of uh instrumentation and that album was called gift horse and that i did such a limited run of that that only only some of my friends have copies of that um the production ended up being not very good because uh, the original tape that it was recorded on uh ended up kind of falling apart so i had to transfer what i could over onto another tape which didn't work out all that well so it's, I've been doing, what I'm trying to say is I've been doing sort of a Jerry Hanna solo thing for a little while, but this is definitely the the, the major, uh, I guess, attempt by me to uh, 
to do my own thing here, you know, with the album Coming Home, the new album Coming Home. The songs from the underground cassette that you mentioned is now selling for $200, the original cassette. And just to put that into perspective, the song we played at the top of the Nardwarta Human Serviette Radio Show, don't you love that top industry term, at the top of the Nardwarta Human Serviette Radio Show, O Canada, sells for $500 on eBay. So your cassette, 200 the O Canada 7-inch by the Subhumans, 500 so $700 you are worth, Jerry Hanna. At least $700 you are worth. So I would say to that, well, why spend all that kind of money when you can buy coming home for a mere whatever it is, uh, digital download for 10 bucks, um, actual physical CD for 12 13 bucks, whatever they're selling it for at CB Baby. So, uh, yeah, why spend that kind of money? You want to hear that music? And as far as, uh, as far as O Canada goes, I mean, that was re-released on, uh, on, uh, on Alternative Tentacles, a label the Subhumans was signed to, or still are signed to, actually. Um, that was released on an on a, on a album that we redid all of those songs from the EP in the, in the first single. And, I mean, that can, I assume, I haven't looked lately, but I'm assuming that that can be purchased from Alternative Tentacles for way less than $500. And plus you get more songs than you would with the original single. And, uh, and the songs are actually remixed, um, remastered, and sound a little bit better. So there you go. In 1981, you mentioned before, you played with the Bad Brains in D.C. It was the Subhumans, Bad Brains, and Minor Threat at the Rumba Club in Washington, D.C. I passed on the information that Brian Gobo, Wimpy, had passed away to Ian Mackay from Minor Threat Fugazi, and he actually emailed me back. He said... Hello, Nardwar. Many thanks for sending me the news of Wimpy Roy's death. I only crossed paths with him in the early days, but remember him fondly and with respect. I'm sure you and I have discussed this, but the subhumans stayed at my house back when I was still living with my parents, as did DOA, and it was a great hang. Fellow travelers, yours, Ian. So that was a note from Ian Mackay regarding Brian Goebel's untimely death. Yeah, well, there you go. Um, everybody stayed at Ian's place except for me. For some reason, I there wasn't room for me at Ian's place. Maybe I just didn't smell good enough or something. But I was actually shunted off to another person's house that ended up being uh, well-known in the punk scene, and that, uh, that was uh, the lead singer from Black Sabbath. Uh, Henry Rollins. <laughs> Indeed, bah, boom. Yes. How was it like? What was it like sleeping with Henry Rollins? Well, I didn't actually sleep with Henry Rollins, so I can't tell you how that would have been. But I did sleep on Henry Rollins' floor, and uh, well, unfortunately, I can't tell you how that was either because I don't remember. <laughs> I may have been under the influence of some strange substance at that time, but you never know. There's an interesting webisode that the punk movie had has Suzanne Tabata's The Punk Movie. You can check that on YouTube. It's a webisode where it's the Subhumans, your band of Subhumans, are speaking here to Jerry Hanna from The Subhumans, about your Washington, D.C. gig, like a grad party at Grandma's house. What can you tell the people about that webisode that's on the Internet? The Subhumans in Washington, D.C., the grad party at Grandma's house. Well, that's an old story, uh, which I've told so many times. I don't know whether I can do it any justice anymore or not, and it's a long story. So to make it, to make it short, 
uh, it ended up we, a bunch of bands were invited to a party up in the wealthier district of Washington, D.C., suburbs where congressmen and so forth live and uh, people that have things to do with the White House and that. And um, uh, I guess somebody wanted, somebody. this young woman was having a birthday party and somebody thought it would be cool to have some punk rock bands there, so they phoned up. They phoned up some punk rock bands in the Washington, D.C. area, and those people said, hey, there's this party, and they're inviting punk rock bands to play. Everybody should go. And we were invited as well. We were going to play, the subhumans, that is, we're going to play as well. And all these punk rockers turned up at this party, and there was, I would say, far more punk rockers at the party than there were, uh, you know, preppies, as I would describe them. Um, not to say all of them were obnoxious people. They weren't obnoxious at all, actually. In fact, they should have been a little bit more um, maybe aggressive and stood up for their rights because we kind of took over the party and it ended up being uh, ridiculous. It was, um, you know, it was like out of a, you know, an Annette Funicello movie or something where, you know, a bunch of bikers crash some wholesome, lovely kind of Disney-esque beach party or something like that. Uh, you know, nobody... Nobody did anything really bad, like you know, no, <laughs> no, no well-mannered people were tortured or anything like that. But uh, the hostess of the party, the young woman that that invited the punk rock bands over, people got her drunk fairly quickly. There was kegs of beer available at the uh, party, and um, so the punks. Uh, well, actually, the DC punks were straight edge, so they weren't drinking that much. But a bunch of LA punks came along with us or met us there. Um, that came from from L.A., and, of course, they were into drinking, so we were all drinking the booze that was available, and um, there was punk bands playing in the in the living room of the house or the foyer or whatever you want to call it, the, the you know, the ballroom, because it was huge, and they moved the grand piano over to one side, and there was slam dancing going on in there, and um, and uh, it, it was just a, a total crazy free-for-all that uh you know the the Washington DC cops ended up getting called to come out and deal with us grandma arrived home unexpectedly from the airport and discovered what was going on at her uh kids house and uh called the cops and so everybody scattered and uh you know the DC punks just kind of slowly sauntered off but the LA punks and us we kind of really booted it out of there and tried to put distance between ourselves and, um, uh, you know, we were expecting sort of an L.A. riot squad kind of thing with helicopters and so forth, because that's what happened in L.A. usually, you know. Um, but uh, it just uh, one single squad car c- turned up with a couple of uh, cops, D.C. cops in it, and they asked us very politely if we knew of a, any a party around there that, uh, that was kind of out of control and noisy. And we said, oh, you know, it uh, might be that one just down the street or whatever. Oh, thank you very much. And on they went. It was, uh, it was a totally crazy scene. It was absolutely unbelievable. It was like, you know, you couldn't have, if you had a, tried to make a movie, a funny movie about that, you probably couldn't have made it more surreal than the actual experience. I sent Ian Mackay that webisode. He watched it and he emailed me back, Jerry. He said, I was there. They left out some really great details. For instance, when the prom kids showed up for their party, the punk show was cut short because they unplugged the PA to plug in the keg cooler, a situation that we quickly reversed. This went back and forth a couple times until the fists were flying. 
As I remember it, the reason we were all playing there was that Jamie, the bass player of Iron Cross at the time, was friends with the girl who was having the after-prom party. He asked if his band could play, and when she said yes, he just invited all of us to jump on the bill. I think there were about four or five bands that showed up. The gig largely happened before any of the prom kids came back, but it sure heated up when they did. Ian Mackay. Mm. Wow, how about that, eh? More information out there. Yes, that's from, that's from a Washington, D.C. resident himself who, uh, who probably remembers it a lot, lot better than I do. I didn't remember the unplugging and plugging thing, but then, as I said, the subhumans never even got to play. So I, I, you know, I'm not surprised that those that were playing at that party n- noticed what was going on a, a lot more carefully. Um, I just remember it was absolutely and utterly absurd. And it ended up turning into a chili fight, too, where punk rockers, they started serving chili at this party uh, out of a big cauldron or whatever. And as I recall, um, punk rockers started throwing chili at the, 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 grad, the grad partiers, and so that erupted into a massive kind of food fight, too. Jerry, you have a brand new release called Coming Home. It's a brand new LP. For some background on the story, we have to get you to jail. Like right now, we're speaking about you playing with subhumans, but we kind of got to get you to jail. I don't want to send you to jail, but we have to get you to jail, Jerry. Could you please explain this quickly, maybe how you ended up in jail? What was direct action? What was briefly direct action for people that don't know? Well, direct, direct action was an uh, armed revolutionary group, I suppose. It was comprised of five people, uh, myself and four other friends, and uh, we, we believed that we had to actually take armed revolutionary tactics against the state to try and turn things around that were horribly out of control in the, in the world. And uh, I, after I left the subhumans in 1981, the first, first time I left the subhumans, um, I got involved with this group. And we ended up going underground, um, and that was because of uh, we had done a few, or uh, you know, the group had done a few actions uh, like plant, actually bombing a few places. They bombed uh, the Chikai Dunsmuir substation over on Vancouver Island, which was a hydroelectric substation for a new hydro line that had been fought tooth and nail by environmentalists against and. Uh, the BC Hydro decided to go ahead with it anyways. The government backed their decision, and um, and uh, we were also uh, uh, the the group was also enraged at the uh, pornography that was being sold by a pornography store in in Vancouver area that was selling snuff films and uh, stimulated rape films and so on. Um, and uh, the group attacked that pornography chain as well, pornography store. And um, and the group also ended up um, uh, uh, planting a bomb at uh, a company called Litton Systems in Toronto, Ontario, um, that was manufacturing guidance, the guidance systems for the American cruise missile, uh, which was a, a nuclear missile. It was a first strike nuclear missile. In other words, uh, it was designed to... Um, this is back during the Cold War, of course, in the days of the Soviet Union. It was designed to be able to sneak under the Soviet Soviets' radar system, so that they could America could initiate a nuclear attack against the Soviet Union before they had time to uh, respond to it. Which which uh, was 
presumed by many experts at the time to be a serious um, uh, change in the balance of uh, you know the nuclear standoff that the that America and the Soviet Union had at the time, which made it even more likely that we might have a nuclear war at some point. So, anyways, we decided to uh, to take action against these things and others, and um, through you know pretty serious means, you know, like in some cases bombing. Um, we were armed with guns to. In pre- prepared to defend ourselves if we were attacked by police or they attempted to arrest us or whatever. Uh, it was all pretty heavy stuff. Anyways, we were we were captured, um, arrested, and um, and thrown in jail and and went to trial and we all got sentenced to fairly lengthy sentences. I got sentenced to ten years in prison. Um, my girlfriend at the time was a woman by the name of Julie Belmus. She was sentenced initially to 20 years in prison because she was convicted of more charges than I was, including the Lytton bombing. Um, and uh, in the process of this uh, imprisonment, they, of course, the authorities decided that they, they had to make it look like we were horrible people, that we weren't human beings, we were just kind of criminal thugs. And that was the only reason why we did these actions was because, you know, we were kind of criminals out for a good time or something like that, just trying to stir up crap in the society. So um, they decided that they needed to have, they needed to find a wink, 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 a weak link in the, uh, in the group that they could maybe use to um, help their cause in making us look like we were basically really brutal, barbaric people, uh, terrorists, as they would say nowadays. And um, I guess they decided the weakest link would be Julie, because she was very young and very upset about what had happened. And um, they, after she was sentenced, she was transferred back to uh, a prison in Ontario called uh, Kingston Prison for Women, and so she was transferred 2,000 miles away from her friends and her family and all of her complete support network and put in, put in a place where she knew no one in a, a total kind of, uh, you know, hostile, difficult environment. And um, then they just worked at her. Um, CSIS, uh, which is Canadian Security Intelligence Service, um, you know, the, the equivalent of America's CIA, um, they, or FBI, they, uh, they came to visit her, I think something like once a week, and um, and basically there was immense pressure put on her that uh, because Julie was trying to get her sentence lowered from 20 years to a, a lower sentence because understandably so I mean 20 years sentence federal prison sentence for a 19 year old woman uh, who doesn't have a record is pretty heavy stuff to have to deal with um, so she was trying to get her sentence reduced and. Uh, I guess they put the pressure on her, basically saying, "Well, you know, if you want to get your, you know, your sentence reduced, you're going to have to show some remorse, and that remorse is going to have to take the form of you basically saying, you know, that you know you didn't want to do this, but you felt that you had to, you had to be in the group, or something bad might happen to you if you tried to leave the group." Which is what Julie ended up saying at her sentencing hearing when she came back to. Uh, BC to have her to, to actually have her sentencing hearing, and uh, they lowered her sentence by five years, so she ended up ha- ha- having a 15-year sentence instead of a 20-year sentence. Um, so 
The reason I'm saying that, I mean, one could say, well, that's kind of irrelevant to the overall political aspect of this whole thing. And perhaps it is, although maybe not, because I think it's important that in any political organization, the powers that be that want to destroy that political organization, whether it's a legal above-ground political organization or whether it's an underground political organization, they always go for the weakest link. They're, they're always going to try and find the person that they can turn around and work on that person. And um, so maybe it's not irrelevant even on a purely political perspective. But the reason I mention it mainly is because it's, a, it's part of the new album, Coming Home, which some of which was written while I was in prison. Um, it's part of the story of that album. Uh, the song, two of the songs on that album directly relate to that whole experience. Uh, and what happened with Julie and how I reacted to that, how I felt about that, and how other people felt about that. And indeed, to some extent, how Julie felt about it. Julie was a rock and roller herself. She played in the band No Exit. She wrote the song Nothing New. Was Judy in the band No Exit, the punk band? Julie was in the band No Exit. That's correct. How much had she been in No Exit? Like, was she in there from the beginning? Did she do many gigs? Is she recorded with them? I don't know that much about that. Uh, I, you know, you'd have to talk to Julie about that. I, I, I don't know. Um, all I know is that she was in No Exit. I remember that she was, you know, she was a bass player as well. Like, you know, I was a bass player back then. She was a bass player too. And um, uh, I know that she used to work at Woodlands, which was a um, uh, uh, hospital for for people with uh, psychological issues um, in BC, and uh, I know she worked there, and I know that she used to practice her bass at work. Um, but I don't I don't remember much about Julie being in No Exit. Uh, I, I think that that was that was more something that happened prior to when I met her. Did you hear a little while back about that Surrey couple, quote, charged with terrorist plot against the B.C. legislature on Canada Day? Uh, is, that, or that, is that the group you're referring to, the couple that were going to, had some vague idea about planting some bomb at the B.C. legislature? Yes, there were some headlines, quote, how Canada Day terror suspect with little sense of morals went from talented punk guitarist to alleged jihadist. Yeah, I just love those headlines. Those are amazing. Eh? Um, yeah, I don't know that much about those two. I, I remember reading about it when they were initially arrested, and I thought, okay, we're just we're ta- once again we're talking about people with some you know mental issues, uh, psychological issues that probably need some help and uh, didn't get it, aren't getting it, and went and did something really stupid or planned to do something really stupid. Um, I don't really know why people who want to change the world. Are, are jumping on, well, I'm not, I don't think they are jumping on the jihadist bandwagon, but that's certainly the way it's made to look in the media and by our government, particularly our federal government. Um, but the ones that are, it's a real shame because it used to be many, many years ago that people were, that were disenfranchised with the way the world was going and what was happening in the world and the dehumanizing, ex- exploitive aspects of of how people are treated on this planet, uh, they used to become socialists, for God's sake. <laughs> and they used to do things like organize trade unions and uh, get together and, and, and uh, you know, figure out how they were going to, uh, you know, get rid of, uh, you know, our governments that were basically uh, puppets to, 
industry and 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 try and bring in a, a you know new kind of uh, socialist ideas and platform and and instead of that happening nowadays it seems like a lot of people who have you know energy and and I, and a sort of idealistic attitudes or at least feel that they're disenfranchised by the system that they're in um are kind of doing this you know jumping on this jihadist bandwagon thing and I just don't get that because Obviously, that is not going to be any more progressive and liberating uh, and kind, compassionate than what we have right now, you know. So why get behind that? That's not a solution. And we're speaking here to Jerry Hanna from The Subhumans and now solo with Jerry Hanna coming home. Brand new release. Check out Bandcamp, Jerry Hanna. Jerry, why exactly were you in jail? Like, what exactly were you in jail for? You were planning to rob a bank. You didn't blow anything up and you guys found dynamite by chance and you learned stuff through TV crime shows? Well, I wouldn't quite put it that way, <laughs> but <laughs> I don't think we learn stuff through TV crime shows. Um, I think we learn stuff other ways, including, you know, reading literature that was readily available at that time. Um, and, you know, peer, people in the group had gone and visited with various people in Europe and that, that, you know, had some idea about what they were doing. Um, I don't, we weren't, we weren't harmless, uh, you know, uh, we were, we were, you know, in some ways, the genuine article. You know, but it, it, it was, we weren't just innocent little, you know, you know, a bunch of kids from the suburbs, middle class kids from the suburbs. We we uh, we were dangerous. Um, we weren't. I wouldn't say we were dangerous to you know, in the same way that we were portrayed as being dangerous. But you know, our, our the idea was that if we were if we were fired upon, we would return fire. So I mean, we were armed. We had real guns. Um, at some, at some point, the group possessed explosives, obviously. Um, you know, and, I, and I've, I've said this before, or I'll say it again, because it's another opportunity to say it. I think that the group was reckless in some ways, and I think we were, I think we had pretty grandiose, uh, you know, I don't know. We got carried away, I think, with, uh, with doing things on this huge level, on a huge scale, and I don't think it was necessary. I think we could have... We could have achieved a lot of the same things by doing things on a much more modest scale, much less dangerous scale, and I mean dan- much less dangerous for not just not just for ourselves, but for everybody in- involved. You know, I mean the Lytton bombing did actually hurt people. It wasn't intended to, but it did, and um, that that's what I mean by reckless. That was, uh, you know, we were a bit cocky. And, um, yes, we believed in the ideals that we were fighting for. We really did. We believed in the ideals. We really believed that we were making the world a better place. And I, I, don't, I don't have anything against the ideals that we, have, we had at that time. I still have those ideals. Um, but, like I say, I think we went about it in a somewhat reckless manner. I don't think it was that well thought out. And um, I think there was a bit too much bravado and cockiness involved. Um, but having said that, I don't think we were the, uh, the thugs, the monsters, the terrorists that the, certainly the state and to some extent the media tried to make us out to be. I, you know, and that's, again, coming back to the, to the album, Coming Home, that is partially an attempt by me to tell the story, the kind of humanist side of what that was like to go through that, you know, to be in, to be, uh, 
you know, a revolutionary to be in prison, uh, to have a relationship blown apart by, um, you know, uh, basically uh, the state trying to drive a wedge between us. You know, to some extent, that's what coming home is about. But your initial question was, why did I go to jail? I think, and the main charge that I was that that that, that my sentence consisted of was conspiracy to commit robbery. And what that was all about was, of course, we needed funding to support our operation, and we couldn't just go somewhere and say, hey. Could you give us a grant? You know, we couldn't go to the government and say, "Hey, could you give us a grant, please, to stage, you know, to stage revolution against you? You know, we want to get rid of you, actually, and uh, but we're short on cash. Could you, you know, give us some money to do that? Uh, you know, it wasn't easy being underground, having a false identity, and and you know, raising cash in traditional methods. So, the way to raise cash typically at that point was to take money from the you know the capitalists directly and that's what we intended to do and that's what the we were planning on robbing a, a Brinks guard and uh using the money from that robbery to finance our operations and that is the charge that I received the most well I received 10 years for that charge alone everything else was uh concurrent to that so you know I there was other charges but they were they were much smaller compared to that charge that's what I did my time for did you ever think about targeting corporate rock at all, like Loverboy? <laughs> uh, well, no, we didn't. I mean, uh, <laughs> I thought that's what punk rock was doing. You know, we, you know, punk rock was uh, was targeting corporate rock. You know that that's where that that's where punk rock came from. You know, um, and, and 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 in some ways, maybe that's why it was. A, for me, it was a natural progression to go from, you know, attacking corporate rock to attacking, you know, uh, the state, which which allows corporations in general to, uh, to you know, to, to take what they want from the planet and from us and uh, for us to have no control over them. The song Half-Life off your new LP, and we're speaking here to Jerry Hanna from The Subhumans, now solo with Coming Home. Check it out on Bandcamp, Bandcamp Jerry Hanna. Half-Life, it connects to Red Hot Video. The bombing of Red Hot Video, Half-Life does? No, it doesn't. No, I wouldn't say that at all. Um, it's, it's only, and it's only even about, it's only like, um, it's only about pornography in a small way. It's actually about objectification. Uh, and, and, and it ties in with objectification in, in sexual objectification, but it ties in with objectification, in my opinion, in many ways. It's about not being able to relate to a person on, a, on the basis of who they are and, and valuing them for, for who they are and what they are. It's about, it's about seeing them as an object, an object of desire, if you will. And I see that happening in our society uh, not just through pornography, but to some extent through pornography for sure, but through all kinds of things, through advertising, um, through, through, you know, through the way people sometimes talk about relationships, particularly men. Um, I see it as, as a problem. I see it as a problem in our society. And it's a problem that I don't divorce myself from. Like, that's why I can speak about it, I think, with some authority, because it's something that I, I feel that I fall into that category sometimes too where i objectify 
you know i mean slave to my dick was in a way an earlier version of the you know the same issue uh, you know half life is kind of revisiting that issue in a slightly different context i do write in the liner notes on the album that it's uh you know i mentioned the word pornography but that's only a small part of it and uh, as one reviewer read that and then said uh well, I don't know what to make of this song because I personally like pornography. Yeah, I'm not saying that I hate pornography. That's not what the song is saying. The song is st- saying there's something about pornography that we need to be looking at carefully because it seems to be creeping out through our ent- entire society. And that is this whole idea of objectifying human beings as, opposing them, as opposed to seeing them for what they are, you know, a valuable, uh, you know, uh, living, breathing person with desires and and ideas, and you know, you know, valuing them on that level rather than just valuing valuing them on some superficial level like their body, you know, how nice it is or whatever. That's what the song Half Life is about. And we have a caller. Caller, are you there? Yes, Narcar. Yes, go ahead to Jerry Hanna. Hello, caller. Oh, hello, caller. Wow, Space Invaders. Yes, hold on. Oh, Jerry, amazing. Now, you know what's interesting about this, Jerry, is this caller phone and very weird noises. When you were involved with direct action, you were getting bugged. Did you know you were getting bugged? Is that what it sounds like to being bugged? Were we being bugged right there? <laughs> well, if we were being bugged, it was by the most amateur uh, in- intelligence outfit that ever existed. I mean, you're not supposed to know when you're being bugged, Nardmore. It's That's the whole point of bugging someone, so that you can listen to what they're saying without them knowing you're listening to what you're saying. <laughs> uh, I thought that that was maybe your system malfunctioning there in the studio, but you're saying that actually was coming from the phone? That was a caller. And if anybody has any questions for Jerry Hanna, it's 604-822-2487, 604-UBC-CITR. That was actually coming from the phone. That was an actual caller. That was an actual question for a caller, and that was actually put on hold. And it made me think about you getting bugged when you're involved with direct action, because they really monitored you. Like, they saw you eating at Beano's quite a bit. You always ate at Beano's, and they noted that over and over again. I don't know. Do you have the? You must have the surveillance notes there in the studio. I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember what we were doing. It was all kind of nightmarish for me to tell you the truth. You know, when we were living underground in a in a little house in New Westminster, uh, away from our family and friends, and just kind of hiding out. I um, yeah, we were. I I, I know that. I know that Julie liked to go to Baskin and Robbins quite a bit and have uh, and eat ice cream. Um, I don't remember if we went to Beano's, but we might well have gone to Beano's. I can't remember. How about the New West House where you were, where direct action was? Is it still there? Is there a plaque outside of it? I, I doubt there's a plaque outside of it. I haven't been there. I haven't been in that neighborhood for many, many years. And to tell you the truth, it kind of gives me the creeps. It's a, it, it, it was a really difficult time in my life. I, in some, you know, when I first got when we first got arrested and uh, got thrown into Ocala Prison, this may sound totally unbelievable, but it is the honest to God truth. I felt, on some level, relieved because it had been so horrible living underground in this house 
being on edge constantly, watching over your shoulder constantly, worrying that people were were going to be onto you, going to get onto you. And then there was a lot of strife and stress in the group itself, and there was no escape from that because we didn't have anyone else to turn to. We had to rely on each other to try and sort out our our mess. And I mean, we were just you know, human beings like anybody else. So we, we obviously stress affected us in a bad way and and made people grumpy and and uh you know freaked out and stuff and uh and and uh so it was not a happy time in my life. But I did it did lead to some songwriting and in fact I wrote one song while we were living underground there because I had my guitar with me. Um so it you know it it that was, you know, something that came out of it. But it was a, it was a really hard time, and I was, uh, I, I just, uh, I don't, I, don't, I have no in, interest whatsoever in going in that area of uh, of New West anymore because it, I just, it just reminds me of, you know, I'm immediately reminded of rainy, gray, cold days over and over and over again, and of just kind of being isolated from everything, uh, you know, that, you know, isolated from any warmth. You know, I just remember being cold a lot. Caller, are you there? I am, Nardwar. Can I ask a question, please? Yes, go ahead to Jerry uh, Hanna, caller. Hi, hi Jerry. I, 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 I have two questions for you. And the first is, uh, what's the difference between Jerry Hanna and Hanna-Barbera? And secondly, what's the worst part about buying a toilet on a used toilet on eBay? Uh, well, gee, no. The, those... the, the, wait, wait. The answer is the worst part about buying a toilet on eBay is a used toilet on eBay is having to go to Nardwar's house. Wow, amazing, Jerry. But the caller may have been onto something because your name is one of those names, Jerry Hanna, going to be spelt the same way forward and back. At least Hanna is, right? Uh, Hanna, Hanna Barbera and Hanna. Are that the Hannah are spelled differently? My name is spelled with an H on the end and an, and an H at the, an H at the beginning and an H on the end. Hannah Barbera is spelled with no H on the end. Jerry, did everyone know who was in the Squamish Five? Did people think that Wimpy and Joe were in the Squamish Five? Did Wimpy and Joe of DOA know that you were involved in the Squamish Five direct action? Like, you had stolen identities. Who were you? Did people think that they were involved? Like, when they showed clips of the subhumans being involved with direct action later on, they didn't always identify you. Did any other subhumans get confused as Squamish Fivers direct actioners? I don't think so. I, I, I think I think that they knew pretty clearly who was in direct action. I, if you're, especially if you're talking about, are you talking about the police, law enforcement agencies, or are you talking about the media? Well, the general public, the police, basically, were there punk narcs? Were there people going, oh, Jerry Hanna, he hasn't been in a subhuman's fraud. I bet he's up to no good. Let's narc on him. I don't think so, but I think that, uh, hang on, before we go any further, I, can I ask you a question? Don't you think it's a bit odd that we've had two call-ins that are really, really bizarre? Well, have you listened to the Nardward Human Serviette radio show recently at all? No, I haven't. It's like that every week. <laughs> Bob, boom! <laughs> are we being invaded by aliens? I, I'm, I'm concerned here. <laughs> um, anyways, okay. Well, um, let's just go with that then. Um, yeah. Um, what was the question again? <laughs> 
<laughs> Don't worry about that. I was going to ask you, though, you mentioned about the Skomash Five. You're almost happy or relieved to be in jail, as weird as that sounds. Did you ever think about leaving the Five, though? Uh, leaving direct action? Yeah. Um, probably every day that I was in it. Um, but I, I didn't. Um, for one reason, I, I was madly in love with Julie, and uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't about to, you know, end our relationship. I mean, that's, that's partly why I ended up being, well, that's basically why I ended up being going underground. I, I was, my original plan was to just kind of be a support person for the, for the group. I, I agreed with what they were doing. Uh, I, I, I believed in the ideals that they had, but I didn't think I was really cut out for that kind of work, like to be completely underground, assume a false identity. And now that, now I remember your last question, um, assume a false identity and all that kind of stuff. I didn't really think I was cut out for that. You know, I, I, I didn't, that didn't feel very comfortable to me. But then when uh, Julie came back from Ontario after the lightning bombing had occurred and gone horribly wrong, uh, Julie said, I, you know, I'm going underground. And uh, so, are, so is the rest of the group. So you're either, either you can go underground with me or our relationship's over. It's over between us. And I, well, I went underground because I, I, I was, you know, very much into the relationship. I wanted to, I wanted to stay with her. And we're speaking here to Jerry Hanna from the Subhumans, and now Jerry Hanna solo with Jerry Hanna coming home, a brand new release which you can check out on Bandcamp. Jerry Hanna Bandcamp. Just type in Jerry Hanna and Bandcamp. Did it help in jail, Jerry, that you were a strong guy, that you weren't a wimp like myself, so you could just go up to dudes and like, hey, play on my release. I want to record some music. Play some music with me. Whereas if some other people were to go up to other people, they might have gone, get out of here. Like, did it help that you were big and strong and not a wimp? No, not at all. It, it, and, and I don't know if I am big and strong and not a wimp. Um, but uh, no, that's not that's not what helped in in prison. I mean, one of the one of the first things that helped in prison, um, so I didn't get into trouble, was um, that Canadian prisons back at that time, anyways, were pretty were actually uh, surprisingly civilized places. There wasn't there wasn't that much crap going on, you know, like there wasn't that much pe- people didn't bother each other, uh, you know, unless somebody was involved in drugs or something like that and they weren't paying their debts or whatever, then things could get ugly or if somebody, you know, had had ratted out on somebody else because they wanted to get a, a smaller sentence, prison sentence, so they, they turned in their friend or something like that to the cops, and, and it was known, it became known that this had happened, then bad things could happen. Then people would sometimes end up dead. But, but generally speaking, if you, if you didn't bother people, you just you know, kind of did your own thing and, and kind of watched and saw who the, you know, the mellow, more stable people were and, and, and you know, associated with those people, um, then you could actually survive okay and and uh you know every now and then something weird would happen and somebody would maybe try and get on your case but you know you you just you just tried to diffuse that as quickly as possible and in one case um i had someone kind of bugging me in matsqui prison and um it got to be a little bit more than just that i could handle on my own because the person became quite pers- persistent and um, not very rational and, and, and aggressive. And I just talked to um, um, 
the uh, inmate committee about it because there was an inmate committee in there, and that was formed of people that were doing, generally speaking, long sentences, people that were um, that that wanted to live because I mean that's where they live, that's their home. They wanted to live in a peaceful environment, so the inmate committee was made up of people that that basically said, let's just you know let's keep the peace here, you know. And so I went and talked to them because I had lots of friends on the in- inmate committee by that time, and they said, well, we'll we'll chat with this individual and they went and talked and I don't they didn't lay some heavy trip on them I think they kind of laid more of a moral thing on them and said listen you know this is this is something that has nothing to do with you it doesn't concern you so stop bothering Jerry about it and uh, then that person came and apologized to me so uh, you know and the other thing is that uh, Brent and Brent Taylor and Ann Hansen were both heavily involved those are two of my co-accused in direct action. They were heavily involved in the prisoners' rights movement before direct action even started. So lots of people in prison knew Brent and Ann um, and knew that they were fighting for their, you know, for their well-being. So when we went to prison right off the bat, people knew who Brent was, they knew who Ann was, and they automatically kind of you know, there was automatically this kind of hands-off thing, like you don't mess with these people because these people are are, are good people and have our best, our best, uh, you know, at, at heart. You know, like they're concerned about us. So, so uh, that was part of it. The other thing is, I bumped into um, when I went to Matsky. One of the first people I met was a a guy who had been a fan of the Subhumans. Um, uh, a very large black fellow uh, <laughs> who was a actually a wonderful guy and i hope that everything is still going well with him i haven't seen him in years but he he uh you know immediately we became friends and um you know we hung out a lot together and stuff and i would say that you know people weren't really too interested in, in messing with me partly because they knew that they would have to mess with him before they messed with me and um he was a very very large fellow and quite capable Jerry, what did you look like in the subhumans versus what do you look like now? For instance, I've seen photos of you in the subhumans wearing a jean jacket that has like anti-sex written on it. And nowadays I've seen you with like a mustache beside like a Massey Ferguson cairn. What is that? Could you explain what you looked like in the subhumans with a jean jacket and if you had anti-sex written on it? And what is Massey Ferguson from anti-sex to Massey Ferguson? Well, uh, that's an interesting uh, question. Um, Anti-sex, well that referred to, uh, you know, I mean, to some extent, when I first became a punk rocker, um, I was in, I was, you know, completely in awe of the Sex Pistols. Um, and and the Clash and the Damned, but the Sex Pistols were were it. So kind of whatever Johnny Rotten said um, was, you know, I kind of almost took that at, at gospel, which was in retrospect ridiculous. But <laughs> but one does that, I think, maybe when they're young and impressionable, and uh, and they and something comes along that they 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 are really excited about. You know, you kind of jump into it hook, line, and sinker. So one of Leiden's things back in the early days, back in 77 or something, was, you know, um, you know, sex is boring. We've got no time for sex. We're too busy out, you know, stirring up shit and making music. There's no time for, you know, romance and relationships and stuff like that. And for some reason, that, that, 
struck me. I mean, maybe it was because I'd had some problems with relationships just prior to that. And for some reason that struck me as being almost like a, a, a religious truism or something like that. So, I mean, you, you're quoting one thing that was written on my jean jacket, which was anti-sex. Uh, and that's what that was in, in, re, in relationship to. But, I mean, there was lots of things written on that jean, jean jacket. There was also that slogan from... Uh, from the Buzzcocks, I hate fast cars, right? I had that written on that jean jacket. I had the Downed and the Sex Pistols and the Clash written on that jean jacket. I had all kinds of other crap, too. Anti-State, I think, was written on that jean jacket. I had a Canadian flag sewn on the back of the jean jacket, upside down, uh, with, a, with a swastika in the middle of the flag, you know, drawing attention to the fact that I thought the Canadian state was, uh, had some fascist tendencies deep down inside. Um, so there was a lot going on on that jean jacket, which I still have somewhere, buried under a bunch of junk, um, because I just never had the heart to throw it away. But, um, yeah, so, you know, and then the anti-sex thing didn't last all that long. <laughs> as, soon as, as soon as somebody, you know, a woman came up and, uh, and uh, showed some interest in me, uh, the anti-sex thing kind of went out the window. And for your new release, Coming Home, we're speaking to Jerry Hanna from the Subhumans, also solo, Jerry Hanna coming home on Bandcamp. There's a promo pic, and in the background of promo pic, yeah, could you describe how you look in the promo pic, and what is that Massey Ferguson Cairn in the background there, how you've changed? Uh, I guess I'm, I guess in some ways I am going back to what I always loved the most, which I don't know that that's a secret to you, because let's face it, I've been on your show more than once in the past. <laughs> and uh, I think we've even made jokes, or you brought up the fact that I was called Nature Punk at one time. Um, I was always, I always had a connection with, with the country and the bush and, you know, the things of my, tra- the things that turned me on when I was a kid, which were old relics, you know, like old tractors and, and uh, old machinery, you know, rusting out in some, you know, field somewhere, uh, or an old aqueduct that was falling apart that used to water an orchard somewhere that, you know, where now there's just a bunch of boards laying through the desert. That stuff always interested me and attract me, attracted me. So, so uh, you know, I did a photo shoot in, in, the, in the Fraser Valley, and um, the, the place that the photo shoot took place at was a beautiful old farm. And at that old farm, there was a bunch of old equipment laying around, including... Massey Ferguson. Massey Ferguson, of course, was a Canadian company um, that made apparently great tractors. Um, and so I thought I'd just do my little bit, you know, for for you know patriotism and 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 uh, and have Massey Ferguson's logo in the picture. Um, besides, it was a good place for me to lean while the photographer was taking a picture. So um, we thought, yeah, okay, why not have Massey Ferguson in there, you know? Um, and that's how, that's how that came up. I always loved that aesthetic. You know, I'll tell you, to be honest, um, part of, probably my favorite aesthetic in the whole wide world are some scenes from the movie Easy Rider, including the famous scene where the hitchhiker is picked up at dusk in the desert by um, Captain America, you know, uh, Peter Fonda's character. Um, those, that kind of whole dry, dusty, deserty. Uh, country uh, scene has always really appealed to me and in a way that was that was always a problem for me in punk rock because 
punk rock is a very urban thing. You know, when punk rock bands had take had pictures taken of them, nine times out of ten, it was up against some horrible brick wall covered with slime where people would peed all over it and so forth, you know, standing around in their ripped clothes, which was all great fun at the time, right? Um, but the thing about it was that wasn't my natural element. Like, I did okay in the city. I did just fine in the city, actually. You know, and I've been to, you know, some of the biggest cities in North America and stayed there for quite a while, and I, 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 I don't mind them. I get around just fine. But, but I'm always, I've always been drawn to the country. I've always been drawn to nature. I've always been drawn to kind of an, an, an old, almost, um, you know, an archaic way of life out in the country. And so now I feel more inclined to kind of express that. And I think that aesthetic is expressed not just in, the, not just in some of the photographs that are taken, to promote coming home, I think there, I think that's also expressed right in coming home. Um, I think the songs have much more of that kind of vibe and and uh, aesthetic to them, and it's it's not it's deliberate. It is deliberate because that's that's what really kind of appeals to me. That's where I kind of want to go. You know, not to say that I've turned my back on rock music. I haven't, but but I and, and there is some there are some rock songs on that album too, but. But I, I, I like that feel. I mean, and if you listen, to, you know, if you listen to songs from Underground, which was recorded in 1985, you you hear the same aesthetic. You'll hear the same feel. I'm trying to I'm trying to be a little bit more um, organic and a little bit less, you know, uh, in a in a in a smelly, dirty club with uh, you know toilets backed up and filthy urinals and you know that kind of scene. I'm trying to move out of that a little bit. I've been trying to move out of that for a long time, since like at 1981, I guess. Jerry Hanna, the song Like a Fire from Coming Home, it's the first song you wrote after the Subhumans. What if that worked as a punk song? And it made me think, how did you write it on acoustic guitar? And also it made me think, how did you write Slave to My Dick? How did you write Fuck You? Were those written on acoustic guitar first? No, interesting Interesting that you should ask that question. I was just talking about that somebody with somebody yesterday. I think, um, yes, I'm. Uh, you know, like like a fire, and a, and all the songs on coming home were written on acoustic guitar, and almost all the songs that I did with the Subhumans, and certainly Slave to My Dick and Fuck You, were written on bass guitar. So it's a it's a different style for me. When I sit down with a bass guitar and I start writing a song, a different different kind of song comes out than when I sit down and start writing a song with acoustic guitar. Um, and, and that is where the songs come from. I don't sit down and decide, well, I'm going to write a song about the country, or I'm going to write a song about the city, or I'm going to write a song about suicide, or I'm going to write a song about how great life is. I don't sit down and decide to do that. I sit down with an instrument, maybe a bass guitar, maybe an maybe a acoustic guitar, and something happens, some sort of melody starts and chord progression starts coming out of that or in the case of bass a note progression and um the song comes from there and then i start thinking well what words work well with this rhythm of this song and uh that's what that's how the lyrics start happening once i start getting a couple of a couple of lines or a couple of phrases then i start building the song around that lyrically um yeah it's perceptive of you to, to suggest that the two are kind of coming from two different instruments, because they most definitely are. 
um, you know, I, I, you know, fuck you couldn't. I don't think you could. I don't think it, you could ever have written it on acoustic guitar. It's definitely a kind of a bass guitar type song written on a bass guitar. Um, and then some of the songs on Coming Home, well, you know, you can hear that that's the, that those are chord orientated songs that are based on a chord progression. So, yeah, different, diff- two different uh, ways of approaching it. Totally. Now, sometimes there is crossover, uh, and even on Coming Home. Uh, I pay, I play all the all the rhythm guitar on Coming Home, but I also play some of the bass on some of the songs on Coming Home. I play ba- the bass, and I think you can kind of hear when I'm playing bass if you listen carefully, because I've got a certain style where I'm almost kind of trying to do this kind of rhythmic um, thing with the bass guitar in the background, and sometimes that that becomes a little bit. You know, not quite your standard bass progression, but something a little bit different than that. Somewhere between a chord progression, progression and a bass progression, maybe more of a kind of a hypnotic rhythm. You know, to draw people in. Almost. Uh, no, I won't say that. Never mind. Go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, winding up here with Jerry Hanna on an Ardwarda Human Serviette Radio Show. Solo artist with Jerry Hanna coming home. The Subhumans, looking at what you guys accomplished in the early years, it's quite incredible. Like your debut gig in San Francisco is with the Dead Kennedys. You must have played with Black Flag like more than 10 times. You did that minor threat Bad Brains gig. Iggy Pop showed up like at one of your gigs at like a Legion Hall in Vancouver opening for Joan Jett. I think you played with like Husker Du, The Misfits, and even Mick Jones tried to steal your girlfriend. This is like Mick Jones who you had written on your jean jacket is now stealing your girlfriend. Things are going so well. Why would you want to leave any of that? I know it was like punk was getting rough and everything, but there were some good things there. Yeah, there were some good things there. Of course, you're right. Uh, I don't know about the things that you listed, but there, <laughs> there was some good things there. I don't know that Mick Jones trying to steal my girlfriend was particularly a good thing. Um, uh, however, earlier that day, I believe it was that day. No, it wasn't that day. It was the day before um, my girlfriend at the time, and I had ridden. We were just talking about this the other day, actually. Um, uh, she, my ex-girlfriend. She, we, we were, had been uh, riding around in Vancouver. Um, with Joe Strummer and I think Paul Simonon in the back seat, and we were passing a bottle of wine around. Um, that was a good. That was those were good times. That was in the very early days, though. That was that was the first time the Clash came to Vancouver. The second time the Clash came to Vancouver, they almost they almost were driven out of Vancouver. They had to run for their lives practically. Um, the you know Vancouver, a bunch of Vancouver punk rockers spray painted their bus with nasty derogative. Uh, of slogans and so forth, because they felt that the the band was selling out. So things were splintering already, in a way. I mean, there was lots of good things going on in the punk scene, um, and I guess if I had of been able to see what could have happened, I I, may, I might have directed myself in a in an you know like a lot of people that were around at that time ended up doing quite well for themselves. In a, in when I say quite well for themselves, I mean that they were able to follow their art and survive you know, making their art and, you know, coming from the punk scene, right? And I kind of wished that I had of been able to, I had to had the foresight to been able to be able to do that. But at the time I had no idea what was happening. I, I, you know, I was totally swept away by what was happening in the moment. I wasn't able to plan into the future too, too far. The other thing is when I became a punk rocker, we were rebelling against the old dinosaur bands that had become really schmaltzy and really commercial and uh, seemed to exist for nothing more than to turn out another hit 
record and make a bunch of money off of it that you know that that wasn't saying anything um and so i made a i made a decision early on and when i was a punk rocker and that was that there's no way i was going to be doing this after i from after i was 26 and um that that was something that kind of drove my direction as well um and the other thing was if if i could have if i could have been you know spending a lot of my time out in the country and and hanging out in kind of rural situations and that and going hiking and stuff i probably would have stayed in the subhumans and i probably would have stayed in the punk rock scene or i might well have but there it was it it didn't seem possible at the time we were very very busy the subhumans were very busy it was hard to get any time off to go do anything and um so i just I felt like I couldn't handle it after three years. I felt like I, or four years, I felt like I had, I'd had enough of that. And I, I really needed my, my rural fix, you know, and I wasn't getting it. So, um, that's, that's a large part of why I left. And also I was in love with Julie and I didn't feel like I had any time for my relationship. So that was another thing. But like I say, in rep, in, in, in retrospect, um, it's quite possible, uh, Quite possibly, if I had a stayed in there and not not succumb to heroin or some other thing that happened, because that eventually came along in the scene, kind of right when I was leaving the scene, that was coming into the scene, as well as violence, real, real macho, stupid violence. Um, if I hadn't have got carried away with that, maybe I would have ended up being able to do something that I really love, like maybe producing. You know, I I, I love producing music, right? Um, maybe I could have gotten involved with uh, you know indie bands, pr- pr- producing indie bands, and that would have been something that I would have loved. To, then I would have had a career that I actually that paid my you know put a roof over my head, and I also really enjoyed getting up every day to do, which unfortunately has not been the the way my life has gone. I I do have a roof over my head, but I don't really enjoy getting up every day and doing what I do to put the roof over my head. So I do look at that as well. But um, you know, I mean. What they say, hindsight is twenty twenty. I I had no idea what was coming back then. How about for major label interest? I know punk bands got very little major label interest, but weren't there some slash guys sniffing around you? Could that have helped you guys slash records? Was there a little bit of interest in major labels for the subhuman slash records? Maybe, maybe. I don't remember that in particular slash re- records uh, sniffing around. One thing was Nardware. We were really at the time we were really uncompromising at least we felt like we were uncompromising we wanted to be uncompromising so people were suggesting that maybe we tone down our songs a little bit and that way we might get some airplay and so forth and um we were we we refused you know we weren't going to do it but in retrospect you know if you're if you're if your hits you know are have names like slave to my dick and fuck you the odds of you ever really becoming you know you know, signed to a label where you can actually support yourselves um, on your music. Back then, that 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 isn't. I don't think that was very likely. Um, now, maybe in, if you're doing rap music or something, maybe you could have you know raunchy raunchy lyrics, raunchy names for your songs, and maybe you'd you'd st- still do just fine. But back then, it wasn't an option. Um, so, I mean, in order for the subhumans to to actually have been able to support themselves and continue to put records out indefinitely and pay the bills with their music we would have had to change our lyrical content now you know and 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 to some extent our whole approach to music that's not saying we couldn't have done that 
and still remained on remain true to what we believed in. I, we could have, but like I say, hindsight is twenty twenty. We didn't see how we could do that at the time. Jerry, to end the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show, want to play a couple tracks from Jerry Hanna coming home. What can you tell the people about the track we're going to play, Rejuvenation, and also, if there's time, going to throw in Holy American Empire? Well, Rejuvenation was written, I wrote that when I was in prison, and I wrote that to try and cheer myself up, because I, believe me, I needed cheering up at that time. Um, so I, 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 I believed that if I still believe that if we were true to what we believed in and we were strong and we had tons of support from the outside, that's another thing that's important to, to note about when we were in prison, uh, particularly me. I just had people writing me from all over the world while I was in jail, and they believed in me. Even if I didn't believe in me, they believed in me and told me so. So I wrote Rejuvenation um, as a as a you know, kind of a, a, a song. I didn't set out, again, I didn't set out to write a song like that, but it's the song that emerged from the chord progressions that I, that I started playing on acoustic guitar. And it ended up being a song basically telling me, and to some extent the outside world, hey, listen, we're, we're going to keep, we're going to continue to be strong. We're going to continue to hang in there. Um, we're going to do what's right. And, and, um, and the knowledge that we're doing what's right will will pull us through. It will will save the day, and so that's where that song came from. Uh, Holy American Empire was written about what was going on in the U.S. at the time, which was pretty heavy stuff. I mean, that was when the U.S. had been directly involved in uh, you know uh, suppression of uh, of revolutionary and resistance and progressive movements in in Latin America in a, on a huge scale you know directly training and financing death squads that were responsible for for murdering torturing raping uh thousands thousands of citizens in Latin America so it was a big bloody stain i mean uh, you know and and of course they were involved in all kinds of other things as well and at the same time, you could kind of see that America, in many ways, was falling apart. Um, people, people were totally, uh, you know, the hippie movement had become kind of this hedonistic movement that was all about, you know, uh, you know, getting what you could in life and 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 cheap thrills instead of actually trying to change society. And and, and uh, you know, there was a lot of revolt and 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 problems. Uh, you know, and the poor people were getting poorer. And Reagan was in power, and people, many people loved him. And, Lots of bad shit was happening, and um, that's when I wrote Holy American Empire because it really seemed to me that you know America was beating its chest and going, we are the pinnacle of freedom and democracy. We have evolved to the very top of the ladder in human evolution, and no one will ever surpass us in our evolution. And what struck me about that kind of preaching that the U.S. was into at that time was that every empire, every powerful empire in the history of this planet has said that, and they've all been wrong. Every one of them has fallen down, and the U.S. will too. Nothing lasts forever. Thanks for phoning in to the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show, Jerry Hanna. Anything else you want to add to the people out there at all? Uh, I don't think so. They're probably already tired to death and want to cook their supper or whatever. You know? Why should people care about Jerry Hanna? Why should people care? I don't know that they should care. Um, you know, I mean, if they're curious about Canadian history, if they're curious about resistance, if they're curious about... Um, you know what what lies behind media myth what's actually there you know behind a behind a bunch of media mythology um 
then I suppose it's in their best interest to check out some things about me or check out some things about direct action. You know, and the, the, the album coming home, the new album I just put out is, is an attempt to kind of explain some of that and show a little bit about what went on behind the scenes and what some of my thinking was that led to some of the things I've done. Well, just to make sure, Jerry Hanna, that we're not playing the new album by Loverboy, Heck No to Techno, which sounds like this right now. Heck No, I don't know if you can hear a bit of Heck No to Techno. I can't seem, since we're playing this off Bandcamp, are you still there, Jerry? I am. I can't seem to get, let's see if we can get yours. Okay, there's you. What do you think of this techno beat? What do you think of this techno beat, Jerry? Well, I don't know what I think of techno beat, but I think what you're playing is obnoxious. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm trying to get rid of it, too, right now. And I'm not sure why this is actually on air at the moment. So so while we get that together, I thought I would play... um, We will... uh, we will, we will uh, say goodbye to you, Jerry Hanna. Okay. And uh, we might play another uh, Subhumans number just before we get to rejuvenation because we get got to get rid of this. That was the new Loverboy album, Heck No to Techno. What do you think about that? What do you think about that title, Heck No to Techno by Loverboy? Um, well, I'm not sure what it means. Uh, they uh, probably aren't either. All right. Well, thanks so much, Jerry. Keep on rocking in the free world and do. And then right after this, well, right after Subhuman Soon, we're going to play Rejuvenation. Thanks so much. Keep on rocking in the free world and do, 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 do. Despair, the monster has won, and the 
just can't ignore All the things that I've seen There's right and there's wrong Black and white and there's no in between No in between now Black and white, and there's no in between. 